0: When you think of R&D, you might think of the work being done to create something, some tangible thing, a new device, an advanced vehicle, a physical component of a machine or process that improves tangible results. But this isn't the case for an increasing amount of the world's businesses. With the rise of the digital economy, the amount of R&D investment in intangible products has risen right along with it. One such product, which some might say is among the most valuable of all, is a patent. The right to use intellectual property, however a company sees fit, is a coveted item of its own. And that's why countries around the world have produced tax incentives based around these intangible goods. And these credits are known as patent boxes. On today's episode of The Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit, we're going to explore patent boxes around the world, as well as the possibility of whether or not the U.S. should offer one of its own. Leading our discussion, I'm going to hand things off to manager of R&D Tax Credit here at Cross-Border Solutions, Lydia Clowney. Lydia, you have the floor.
1: Thanks so much, Matt. It's great to be back. And I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Uh, we have Ike Brannon joining us. He's a, a senior fellow at the Jack Kemp Foundation, and he's held a number of influential political roles as well. Ike, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell us a little about yourself and your background?
2: Hey, Lydia, thanks for having me. So, I've been in Washington, D.C. for about 20 years. Before that, I was an economics professor at the University of Wisconsin. When I got to D.C., after a couple of years, I joined the Senate Finance Committee, which, as you know, has jurisdiction over tax issues in the Senate. I moved over to the U.S. Treasury. And then after that, I moved back after the 2008 election, I moved back to the Senate and continued working on tax issues since 2012. I've been affiliated with a number of think tanks and I've thought a lot and written a lot about tax issues. I will say that after the 2017 tax reform was passed, no one really wanted to hear much about taxes. And so it just <laughs> been really in the last month that all of a sudden being a tax geek is being fun again.
1: Well, hey, I'll tell you, uh, here at at Cross-Border Solutions and certainly on the R&D Tax Credit podcast, we are always happy to geek out about taxes. So definitely happy to have you here. Sounds like it's pretty timely. Let's start with an overview of patent boxes. Just in broad strokes, what are they and how do they differ from the kind of R&D tax credit uh, regime that we have here in the United States?
2: Sure. So the first thing that these things have been around for almost you know 15 years now, and people keep arguing about what their name should be. Some people call them an IP box, some people call them an innovation box. They go broader than patents, but the idea is you create a regime where the income derived from intellectual property writ large. You know, royalties, gains on sale of IP, patent infringement awards, sometimes copyright stuff gets taxed at a lower rate than other types of income. The goal of it is to encourage research and development, obviously. Then there's another thought that people have associated with Rob Atkinson, who's an economist and the founder of the ITIF Foundation, which is a think tank devoted to tech issues. Countries in general should distinguish between the taxation of mobile capital and the taxation of immobile capital. And, you know, patents and intellectual property is increasingly mobile. So it makes more sense that if you want to attract that kind of business that's very competitive and very productive, you should offer lower tax rates for that than things that are very difficult. You know, the other thing that I've discovered in my research, I suspect that you asked me to do this because I've written a couple of studies on IP boxes back six or seven years ago, I guess it would be. And one of the things that we found is that it's not just intellectual property that becomes a mobile when you have a patent box. What you see, especially pharmaceutical companies, is if you're going to put your IP in a certain country, it can make a lot of sense to put some or a lot of your production and your research and development in that country as well. So, So Switzerland, for instance, has had a very robust patent box in the last decade. And not only have they attracted a lot of IP, but there's a lot of research and development in a lot of pharmaceutical companies that do a lot of their production in Switzerland as well. So the difference between this and research, you know, what we have in the U.S., a research experimentation tax credit is basically if one is ex ante, you know, you're letting people write stuff off with R&D or any credit. And then with a patent box, you know, it's kind of an ex post, you're seeing what's going on. You know, one of the complaints that that people have made about who have tried to compare the efficacy of, of the two is that a lot of companies in the U.S. don't really think about their research experimentation tax credit when they're doing their planning. And You know, they make their decisions and based on what the information they have and then exposed, they go to their accountant and their accountant runs a program and and figures out to what degree they're eligible to get R&E tax credits. You know, given that this was becoming increasingly prevalent, it makes one despair of the efficacy of that. So that box is, you know, from my perspective, is much more effective, encouraging what it is you want, which is, you know, research and development in your particular country.
1: Sure. And it seems like if companies aren't considering that ahead of doing the development, then it's really not a motivating tool at that point. It's a gift after the fact, but it isn't necessarily changing behavior like we're trying to. Exactly. Well, how many other countries have programs like this, IP Box and. As opposed to or in addition to credit incentive?
2: Most European countries have one. So famously Ireland, Switzerland, France have one. But you know, I think almost all the countries in the EU have one. And then Turkey, I'm married to a Turk, so I kind of keep track of what they're doing. Turkey has one. The United Kingdom implemented one a few years ago. And then in Asia, you see a bunch of them. China has a very aggressive one. Israel, Korea has one. It's been kind of interesting degree to which that they've sought research and development using that. And then Singapore has one as as well.
1: So about China, what makes their scheme so aggressive?
2: So it's not necessarily that it's a lot lower than others. I think it's fifteen percent, but it's pretty broad. It includes a wide variety of income. So you know, if you have an economic activity that doesn't quite fit into an EU patent box, it might fit into the China patent box.
1: Okay. Whereas some other countries are going to target it more narrowly at a certain industry or or, or product. Is that? I think
2: that's right, right? Everything includes IP, but copyrights and things like that. But China's been a little bit more aggressive about what it'll put in. And that, you know, like I I think I said somewhere else is that I think that's one of the things that that the OECD is, is trying to get a grip on is not only to try to keep the rates low, but to try to limit the extent to the expansiveness of these IP boxes.
1: All right. Interesting. I know Australia recently in the 2021 budget, uh, they set aside over 200 million for IP boxes. Now, that one seems a little bit strange, almost like it's targeted to certain industries. Can you speak at all on the the difference in that Australian program?
2: Yeah. So it's mainly targeted for medical and biotech patents. most of them are, it seems like. like. Certainly, that's always been Switzerland's perspective. Those jobs are considered very high value added. And again, you know what I said before is Switzerland has had a lot of experience where if you uh, track these patents, often what comes over is the research and then the research comes the production and then production you know, comes some office mm-hmm. stuff. So for Australia, I think medical and biotech patents that are Owned in Australia and developed locally will be taxed at 17%. I think they have a 30% corporate tax rate for big companies and 25% for smaller ones. Although I think we'll get into this later, it'd be interesting to see what happens to their corporate tax rate if this G7 tax agreement uh, goes forward.
1: Sure.
0: Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for join us for transfer pricing, University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai/slash TPU.
1: earlier that the high mobility of the IP that is being taxed at a lower rate through these IP box schemes. Can you give us an example of what does it look like when a company is actually trying to move their IP for a tax purpose like this?
2: Sure. So here's one example. You might have a German company that moves its IP to Luxembourg. Luxembourg taxes income from patents at 5.2%, right? Germany has a combined corporate rate nearly 30%. Now, Luxembourg doesn't require R&D attached to the IP to have taken place in that country. So theoretically in this situation you could R&D team for Germany could remain in Germany and possibly get R&D credits there but they're getting a lower tax rate on those uh, on those profits.
1: Sure. So it sounds like there could be a lot of ability to kind of gain the system, do some real tax planning. How do companies think through these issues and how does the existence of the patent box impact some of these companies' business decisions?
2: Here's what I found. I think that's the fear, right? That people are going to create these things and they're just going to be tax havens where people just put their IP in this place. And nothing else, and they basically do some modicum of tax arbitrage where they just put these things solely in our example. Well then Luxembourg and then nothing else kind of moves. And you know, they take advantage of R and D credits in one place and the lower patent box rate in the other. You know, what we found is that there's a little bit of that, of course, but kind of what we find is that they tend to move these actual tangible activities around with their patents. So, you know, for instance, if you look at what Biogen did in the last decade, Biogen opened a lot of new production plants in Switzerland. And, you know, the United States had the tax regime before the TCJA and it was predicated on the fact that we don't want companies to move operations abroad to take advantage of lower wages. You know, when, when we had a worldwide tax regime back then, the idea was we want to equalize taxes across every single country. And, you know what the biogens of the world basically illustrated at large is that biogen moved production, moved factories to Switzerland, not because wages are cheap. Dear God, you know wages in Switzerland are higher than almost anywhere else. That they moved it because of the tax advantages given via the patent box that Switzerland had, and so Switzerland not only gets us tax revenue taxed at a low rate, albeit they otherwise have, but that they get a, a lot of economic activity that generates relatively well-paying jobs. I
1: can absolutely see why a country like Switzerland would want to have a program like that in place to bring more of these jobs into their borders. I mean, that's a lot of what we talk about in the U.S. when we're talking about R&D tax credits, is are we going to keep these skilled, high-paying jobs within the United States? I guess the question that it raises is then every country kind of competing against one another and I guess that probably prompts me to bring up the OECD. They've been working for quite a while on their base erosion and and profit shifting program to try to discourage some of that. Uh, Recently, we had the BEPS Action 5 and the Modified Nexus approach come out of that. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how some of these countries are trying to work together to, to try to reduce some of the gamesmanship? Sure, so the BEPS actually
2: started with an intent of, I think people started, wanted to get rid of patent boxes. And what happened is this thing started to go along as the process started moving is they realize not only is that not going to happen, more countries were going to adopt their own because it makes a lot of sense. When I was at Treasury, so I worked in the Office of Tax Analysis for a couple of years, and one of the things that a lot of people thought was that eventually what was going to happen is, and this might, depending on how you think about the corporate income tax, is that eventually not only is there pressure to lower the rate in a patent box, but there's going to be a lot of pressure to expand that to include as much of a company's income as possible It attract them not only by by having a lower rate but by letting them jam as much of their income as possible and i think what BEPS has tried to do is just try to constrain the action by these countries as much as it can. So, you know, I think all old IP regimes are to be abolished by 2021 and new entrants are allowed into old regimes. But, you know, my broader point about is that in general, a corporate tax rate is really, really inefficient way to generate revenue. And this race to the bottom that this recent G7 agreement is supposed to stop, you know, I, I just think that it's going to be very difficult to do, right? It, because really to do this if they're really going to reach an agreement with the 140 countries or so you know 130 have already signed on they're going to have to come up with a whole bunch of really strict rules about Mm -hmm. how countries are going to tax this kind of stuff and there's going to be lots of winners and losers and i'm not sure if the losers are going to say, well, okay, we're going to be a net loser from this. And it's going to be a really tough road to hoe. And I think a lot of countries have seen that their IP box has attracted a lot of of economic activity. And so I'm not sure why they're going to set this aside. Like, I don't understand at all why Ireland would choose to participate in this. Like, they're definitely going to be a loser. Their 12.5% income tax rate in their IP box has given them a lot of tangible economic activity, right? And it's not just countries parking their IP in that country. Like, there's a lot of economic production in There and the wages have really gone up, right? You know, 25 years ago, Ireland was a second tier European country in terms of their income, and their tax regime has really been what has led them into the forefront of economic prosperity in in the European Union.
1: I think you called Ireland notorious uh, or earlier talking about this topic. And I'm thinking back, I don't know, maybe it was 10 or 15 years ago hearing about, I think it was the tech companies, Facebook or some similar company moving to Ireland and, and what that was doing to the economy there and kind of building almost this new class of workers simply because they might've moved for tax purposes, but they really did have boots on ground there doing their actual business. And it sounded like it did change the Irish economy.
2: Yeah, you know, there's a famous tax maneuver that a lot of people used, including the Rock Group U2, where you can kind of pivot around your income from the Netherlands to Ireland and back to the Netherlands. Again, they called it double Dutch with an Irish, where you could basically whittle down your corporate tax obligations to almost nothing. That particular maneuver has been since put away, but Ireland's chosen a 12%, 12 12.5% tax rate. And if I'm someone who's from Ireland, I'm hard pressed to say, we need to increase corporate tax revenue because it's really worked well for them. And like you said, it's attracted a lot of tangible business. They have a lot of high skilled jobs there. They had so many that before the pandemic, they really had the aggressive at recruiting people from other EU countries to move to Ireland to fill these jobs.
0: Oh, wait, wait. who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp.
1: Okay, so it's worked for Ireland. What does the data tell us about how effective an IP Box is in general for incentivizing R&D, or for raising revenue, or for increasing the economic output that Ireland has seen? Is that common?
2: So, I won't say there's been a lot of research on this, you know, including the stuff I published with Michelle Hanlon at MIT, but almost all of the research out there was done before the modified Nexus approach came into effect. And the data does seem to point out that the tax revenue that is lost due to the lower preferential rate tends to exceed the revenue gains from additional patents. So countries are seeing a net revenue loss. First of all, we don't know how this modified nexus approach is going to change things, so I'm hesitant to make any judgments about that. How much revenue you raise from an IP box is not the best judge whether or not it's effective, right? My perspective is we should always look at things from a purely economic perspective. And so I think Switzerland and Ireland have benefited. Their economy has benefited greatly, They attracted a lot of jobs, a lot of well-paying jobs. And these well-paying jobs have helped increase jobs of blue collar workers as well. Right? That's how the economy works. So, you know, Robert Lucas, the Nobel Prize winning economist, famously said that in an interview with the Minneapolis Fed a few years ago that the closest thing to a free lunch he's ever seen in the world is abolishing the corporate income tax. <laughs> it, it's an incredible disincentive on economic activity, on research, on productivity, on things that increase wages. People just go along with it because they assume that it's just this big tax on faceless corporations. But you know, the reality is that all of us pay it. We pay it in lower productivity, which means lower wages. People who are investors pay for it in profits that the stock we hold onto are lower and there's no reason to think that this does anything to this particular tax does anything to reduce income inequality right if it ends up reducing productivity of people in factories then it's it's probably going to harm them and the fact that the corporate income tax has been inexorably going down for the last 30 years people see as kind of a failure of capitalism. I see it as a success of capitalism, right? This tax doesn't make any sense. And countries that figure it out and keep reducing it tend to benefit. There are other more egalitarian, more efficient ways to collect money than taxing corporations. You know, That's why Pam Olson, Pam Olson was assistant secretary for tax policy during the Bush administration. She recently retired from a job with PwC. You know, one of the things that she likes to say is that if you have to have a corporate income tax, it makes sense to make, and if you can have an IP box or a patent box, it makes sense to make that as broad as possible and jam as much of the profits in there as you possibly can. And she said, that's what people have been trying to do. And And it makes perfect sense.
1: I'm wondering, does the success of a country like Switzerland or Ireland almost depend on other countries like the U.S. Disadvantaging corporations? You know, if the U.S. had a robust IP box scheme, then wouldn't it necessarily reduce the uh, success of those other countries that are working so well and reaping the benefits of our not being a player in that sphere.
2: Yes, I think the United States should definitely consider this. The, the patent regime right now that everybody else has adopted is disadvantageous to us. And my friend Rob Atkinson has been arguing for a long time that the United States has to get serious about changing its tax code so it does more to attract mobile capital, like patents, like intellectual property. And it just can't pretend that it's somehow above this. When I was at Treasury in 2007 or 2008, we did this report on corporate tax reform. And what should the next corporate tax reform look like? And, you know, one of the things I did for this is I went around and talked to corporate tax officers for a bunch of Fortune 500 companies to get their perspective. And one of them who had significant operations in Europe and across the globe said that they were headquartered in the United States because of an historic accident. And that it makes no economic sense for them to be located in the United States today. They had a high corporate tax rate at the time. They had a, at the federal level, at the state level, they had all kinds of regulations. But because they were here, you know, they did a lot of operations in the United States. And one of the things that all these companies stress that I'm not sure people understand is that when a company pushes things, certain activities abroad, doesn't mean that that's necessarily a net loss of jobs. So, you know, um, I'm from a small town near Peoria, Illinois, where, and in my hometown, Caterpillar has multiple operations. And so when I was growing up, almost everybody's father worked for Caterpillar. And, you know, Caterpillar is the second biggest exporter in the United States. And it also has a lot of global production facilities scattered all over. And, you know, one of the things that they like to point out is that, you know, when they produce something in asia that they sell in asian markets that doesn't necessarily mean that there are no u.s jobs being created there's lots of u.s jobs being created all the marketing all the logistics all the engineering support is being done in the united states and caterpillars sales from these low margin things in asia help them increase the market share for their high margin things that tend to be made overwhelmingly in the united states and so i like to tell the story because it illustrates that if you're looking at multinationals how they do business where they pay taxes, where their economic activities create jobs is not at all straightforward. It's good to have a corporate headquarters located in the United States. It's good to have production in the United States. We should be doing more to encourage that in the United States. And the more I think about it, the more I, I've just concluded that having a regime that does more to attract mobile capital to locate in your country, whether you're the United States or you know, somebody as small as Luxembourg, it just tends to make a lot of sense. And I'm not quite sure how this G7 thing is going to play out, but I worry that the ultimate result is this: is that we're just going to end up losing tax revenue, and there's no reason to think that we're going to see any more jobs or economic activity locate in the United States because of it.
1: And it's interesting. It sounds like we really need to look at this issue in a holistic sense. And if we focus too narrowly on only the tax impacts for this one company, we're not really seeing the whole picture there.
2: No, I think that's right, especially if you're just looking at at the impact of of a patent box. It might not be entirely clear how this is going to do, right? And that research I did with Michelle Hanlon, that one of my favorite papers that I've written, I mean, that's one of the things that we discovered is that a patent box is more than just patents. They attract a lot of other economic activity. And I'm not sure people quite understood that before we did this research. It was our goal when we finished this was to create a predicate for the United States to consider doing its own uh, patent.
1: Box. How optimistic are you that we'll see something like that in the forthcoming years
2: here? It's kind of funny. Everyone's trying to figure out what the reconciliation bill that President Biden and, and Congress are trying to negotiate within the Democratic Party, what that tax provision is going to look like. And I think every day they keep whittling that down a little further and further. You know, I think it's going to go in the wrong direction in the sense that we're probably going to see a corporate income tax rate go up because they feel like they need to raise money. And they are mistakenly, in my opinion, under the impression that this is somehow a fair tax to increase, that it, it somehow reduces income inequality. Like I said before, I think the dollars we collect from the corporate income tax are the most expensive dollars that our tax code collects in terms of the opportunity cost of reduced economic activity. I don't see the Biden administration embracing any kind of patent box in the near future. That's certainly not within this discussion the next few months. I think that's a lost opportunity. Having said that, you know who knows what the OECD discussions how those are going to go in the next few months. It could be that these things eventually play out and we feel almost obligated to do this. But the way it's working right now I think this g7 agreement is going to offer very little for us and it's going to be a way for uh, most of the EU countries and and other countries as well that have a significant economic income and have you know the fangs uh, doing a lot of business in there are going to raise more revenue so I think it'll be interesting in six months to see what degree the United States is willing to forego income from the apples and and Microsoft and Google's and so on in order to achieve international comity in the in the tax fund
1: Well, let's end on a completely speculative note. If you could just wave a magic wand and improve the U.S. R&D tax credit incentive system in any way at all, what would it be?
2: If I could do anything, I would probably take the corporate tax rate down to 10%. And get rid of all incentives for research and development. And everything else at 10%, you know, nobody can complain about anything. I think we'd attract a lot of economic activity. I think the loss of tax revenue from a corporate tax rate of 10% would be much less than people think. And you know, we could get rid of 10%. You could get rid of expensing. You could even get rid of the R and E tax credit because these people would already be paying lower taxes. And I think it would be a boon for uh, for the country. I could really have my way, I might get rid of it all together and replace it with some kind of value-added tax. But Yeah, I I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But I think a corporate tax rate to me has always seemed like a bad deal in the U.S. economy. And increasing it from 21 to 25% is a bad deal. And I think even if you were able to get an IP box, that would mitigate the damage, but it wouldn't completely undo it.
1: Well, I thank you so much for joining us today. I think you've given us a lot to think about. I'm certainly going to be thinking about what we've talked about today. It's not just about patent boxes. It's not just about R&D credits. We're really talking about the economy at large. Um, So thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks, Lydia. This was a lot of fun.
0: We want to thank Ike and Lydia for a very informative discussion. If you like this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing and the Fiona Show Tax Provision. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit. And we'll keep you up to date on the latest in this beneficial credit every week. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer. Mary Lynn is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next week.